Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is John Kaplan. John is a Grammy Award mixing engineer, producer, composer. He's been working in studios since the 1990s when he got to start working with artists like InSync, Jennifer Lopez, LL Cool J, Mariah Carey, and a whole bunch of others. And as his career has gone on, he's since been able to lend an ear to records with artists like Paul McCartney, Elton John, Neon Trees, BB Rexa, Jonas Brothers, Black Pumas, and a whole bunch more. And to date, his name has appeared on albums totaling over 25 million in sales, as well as eight Grammy-nominated recordings. And this is a really great interview because John is very thorough with his answers and he gives us a lot of great detail in terms of the types of equipment that he likes to use, plugins that he likes to use. But not only that, more importantly, I think one of the biggest takeaways from this episode is that John gets really into his problem-solving strategy and some of the things that he does when he's feeling stuck with the mix, you know, when he's not sure if there's instruments fighting each other or if the vocal's loud enough or this and that. John gets into all of those details inside of this episode. So with that said, I think you're going to get a ton of great stuff out of this one. So let's just jump right into it. John Kaplan, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? It's good, man. Happy to be here. Awesome. For people who might not be familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into mixing and music production? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm... Uh... My name is John Kaplan. I'm uh, primarily a mixer for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, although I still do some production and have been a producer on and off different times. Uh, you know, I was a dude who always, I was basically a musician my whole life. I was a bass player forever in a million poorly named bands from, you know, all over Long Island when I was a kid and then ended up in a band. Uh, I kind of fell into a pretty good group of musicians, many of which have gone on to um, have great careers from one band called Big Blue Squid that had uh, a guy named Peter Levin was a keyboard player who was played for Greg Allman and Blind Boys Alabama and uh, he's in the place with the High Women and all those guys now big like Nashville session guy and Amy Helm was Levon Helm's daughter Levon Helm cool. from the band so we were in a band and we ran into this other band called the Hatters that were a kind of cool band that I liked at the time we ended up I ended up joining the Hatters and we got signed to Atlantic Records, made a bunch of records, toured the country. And uh, through it all, I kind of always loved, I love playing. But, you know, the live stuff just gets a little boring. I, you know, it gets wore me out, more or less, you know. And uh, I always wanted to be on the other side of the glass. I was always interested in the record-making process. I was always interested in the name of the guy who did it. And um, so eventually, when the band ran its course, in probably 95, I guess we broke up. I started looking for jobs and I kind of fell into a job at, um, through a friend. I was doing a little session based work in New York and just trying to like figure out what to do. And I ended up at uh, right track recording, which was a really great studio on 48th street in New York that, um, you know, tons of big records were being made at Metallica had just finished load there, I guess. Uh, all like Mariah Carey's records and a lot of big hip hop records. Uh, I don't know, t tons and tons of big records. So I was just got a job answering phones. You know, it enabled me to kind of was a little older and I, I always want to be a producer. I don't really see myself as engineering because I saw it as like more of a complicated thing, but I was 
basically tr- stealing studio time at night and bringing in bands and just kind of learning on the go. And, and I, you know, fortunately through, I had made records uh, with the Hatters with some pretty great guys. I was able to poke, ask questions, Mike Barbiero and Steve Thompson, who were huge guys. They mixed like, you know, Metallica Black album. They mixed Appetite for Destruction. They're, you know, huge, huge guys. So I was able to like, you know, pick up a little interest. And then at Right Track, I was able to, you know, pick the brains of like Phil Ramone and uh, Frank Filippetti and ultimately a guy who became my mentor, uh, Neil Dorfsman, who was a huge producer, engineer from the 80s. You know, these guys have multiple Grammys. Neil has I think, four Grammys. He produced Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms, which was like the biggest selling album of in British history at the time. You know, that's the one with Money for Nothing on it and everything. Yeah. And he produced Sting, Nothing Like the Sun. He recorded Springsteen, The River. And he was a friend first and then became a big mentor. And we worked together. And it just kind of like slowly but surely found my way more in to the recording side the production side and um yeah and kind of ultimately fell into i did a lot of production i ended up partnering with a guy named uh pete robinson who was an a&r guy in new york as well he had signed like dave matthews he had a small studio that i kind of partnered with him in and just developed some bands that we did a couple things that got picked up and released and he always had little projects that you know i got to work on and i through it, I ended up founding out like, oh, I kind of can do this engineering stuff a little bit, you know. And when you're learning alongside a guy like Neil Dorfman, you're a moron if you can't pick that stuff. He's so good, <laughs> you know, and you get to ask direct questions of a guy that has just, you know, he's a world-class guy. He's recorded in every great studio. He's worked with the best musicians. So you can really learn a lot. So, again, ultimately, I started to pick up engineering skills. So then I was producing engineering and then producing engineering and mixing. And then uh, while I never thought... I would never call myself a great engineer as far as like, this is a long answer. I'm rambling, but I'll no, it's all going. good. I love this. Uh, <laughs> uh, a great engineer. Cause I think you have to come up as an assistant. I mean, you got to put in the hours, you know, I skipped a lot of, of little grades sort of, you know, I was like, Oh, I kind of know how to do this and I know how to do this. So I was the guy, if something goes wrong, I, I kind of understand how to fix it, but I'm lost. It, t- it throws my game off. I can make things sound good, but if there's, issues i have a hard time resolving just for because i haven't just done the legwork as many hours of actual engineering um it gave me the aptitude to kind of understand how the sounds apply to my ears which i was always good at so i kind of hit on mixing early in that you know it's a little less precious you can take as long as you want to make it sound good in the mix when you're in there recording if you screw up and it doesn't (laughs) sound good you're stuck you got a bunch of guys you, you look like an idiot or you pretend you don't but you have to fix it later that energy always kind of stressed me out the mix side it's like you know take your time figure it out that's my arc basically and you know after a while i pretty much exclusively i like the mixing game it was like those it was a lot more it seemed like something you get paid well to do also the volume of it you know as opposed to i did a lot of projects working with bands that you could work on a project for three months and the band gets dropped or breaks up you got you got paid but like it means nothing to your career Whereas essentially you can mix, you know, a few songs a week, a bunch of different projects, minimum. And all of a sudden the years comes by and you've done 20 different things. You know, maybe one of those stands a chance of registering and getting you some attention, which is essentially the way I, you know, started to get bites on some more, you know, heavy duty projects. So That's a really good point. And I don't think anyone on the podcast has articulated that, um, but it, it's so true. It's like, yeah, often 
the the recording process, yeah, you, people drop out all the time. I guess it happens with mixes too. Sometimes you you'll finish a mix and then maybe a band breaks up before it gets released or something like that, right? Oh, 100%, but you spent a day or two days on that mix. And it used to be albums, but even an album still it's 2 weeks. Whereas making producing a record back in the day, you know, with bands and studio time, you're working on that thing for months, you know, you're committed for months. Absolutely. And when you're younger, you might not have the ability to pick the most likely, ten- you know, you're happy to be there, you know, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the thing is not that much of a priority. So even if it's good, it comes out, it's not a priority. They try it at radio, it fails, it's over. Whereas mixing, you know, you just do a million of them and you can get bites. Yeah, of course. I, and I think you also brought up a really good point, too, of how you kind of you were able to take that kind of big picture view of your career and say like, okay, I, I don't really enjoy this part or, you know, like this is the thing that I really enjoy the most. So I'm going to go double down on this. And I think that's a really important thing for people to to think about as well. Like, you know, a lot of people just are hungry to take on whatever gigs come their way, but it, at some life point, is a do- journey. You can always switch, you know, I think when you start to realize the older I get and the more with everything, you know, if you start to eliminate things that give you negative energy, basically. And if you're stressed out about something, yeah, the, I was very driven. And New York's a very, you know, you got to, coming up in New York is, it's a battle. Yeah. And it was great. It was a great time to be coming up in New York. There's a lot of great music being made. There's a lot of bands coming out of there. It was fertile and, and fun and amazing. I wouldn't change it. But it's hard. It is dog eat dog. And you're, you, you feel so competitive. So you'll challenge yourself to get, get better, blah, 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 blah. And I liked that part of it. But after a while, I was like, man, this is, it's a lot feel stressed you know um, of course i also had a kid and it was like the hours mixing hours a little bit more manageable you know studio hours band wants to record at midnight you're recording at midnight you know when mm-hmm. i was first our engineer i was doing even pro tool stuff i was doing hip-hop gigs you'd sit there you get a call at five to come in at 10 wait around till two but then work till three till five yeah you know and it, yeah i was getting paid pretty well but it was just it sucked you know there wasn't any <laughs> wasn't fun um and that wore me out, you know, so wanting to be, and, and I wasn't passionate about that, you know, Fair. so. Yeah. You it's know, interesting. What you like. I, I, you know, I think that that is a really great concept or great topic about like, you know, just niching down your skills and knowing what you're like, what you want to double down on um, and thinking about the career advancement and how much that, how much time that takes to, to, to move your career forward with that kind of stuff. Um, I'm curious to know, like, as far as, you know, you were able to kind of narrow down to mixing. Did it ever cross your mind of like niching down to a specific genre of music that you wanted to work on? Yeah, I mean, I was always a little bit more, I was fortunate to kind of, and I was active in the scene. Again, I think I I will, I don't know if people give this enough credit, but, you know, being in a place like New York or LA or I guess Nashville, the access I had was a lot higher than a lot of people. It's hard to find gigs unless you're in there. And I knew people, I'd been in a band on a major label I grew up in that town. So, you know, the amount of guys that you could kind of find opportunity, I had a lot of nothing huge, a lot of little bites everywhere. So I kind of was of the take everything. That, that was always my mentality. If it comes in, you never know you're going to get a call again. Just take it. And I like a lot of different genres. Um, in retrospect, I, I, I've watched it serve friends of mine very well to do that. You know, I never did. And some of the stuff I liked the most maybe wasn't as popular. So a little bit, I was always trying to compete with the stuff that was selling records at the time, you know, that was paying the most. And, you know, the difference of when I came up also was it was still this earlier record model where bands were getting signed to a record deal, which was one, two, three records. They're guaranteed to make those records. That is written mm-hmm. into a contract. So 
this band could be done. The label might be done with them by record two. They still got to finish record three. Or they're doing a record. It's a lower budget. They're less tested. Maybe they'll pay Tom Lord Algie to mix the single. Somebody's got to mix these other songs. And the budgets were bigger. So even if I wasn't doing high profile stuff, I was still mixing 10 songs with a, at a decent rate in a bulk. And so there was money. You know, you could, mm-hmm. it, it was an, I was never, I, I would say through my career, I've hit a lot of singles and doubles. I've never hit any, you know, home runs really. But the singles and doubles were paying well. Now, it's a harder thing to do because you do, in, in one way it's nice because you can you spread out quicker, but everything's a single or an EP or, you know, and essentially there's a lot of money at the very top. And then there's not as much money on the, lower level as far as like labels they don't want to commit they're releasing singles they're releasing eps they, they're not going to spend a ton of money until the artist has proven themselves it's a different model which has kind of changed it's changed the, the the structure of it i don't know that i would have made the same choice now as i would have then i think mm-hmm. now you kind of have to be a little bit more of a jack of all trades i think um or it's harder to not be um and most people i know are Guys that were musicians, that were talented, became producers. Everyone learns to engineer. There's a learning curve. They suck at first. They start watching videos. They ask their friends. They get better. Do they ever get great? No, because I never got great because they weren't sitting there being mentored in a great recording studio. You know, the, the only way to be great is to practice your craft at the highest level with the highest people. But you get good enough to get it done. You start doing your own mixing. You start watching videos. You know, so on lower budget stuff, guys are working a lot of hours, but they are getting paid to produce, play some of the instruments, program, and mix it. And then if they're lucky, if there's a budget, they can farm up the mix, you know? But I think without the broad skill set these days, it's really hard to get to the point of becoming a mixer, sort of, you know? Yeah, that's true. Unless I think your aptitude is you love it, and you can partner with a guy or people that you think are talented on the production side, and let me take over the mixing piece of that, let me take over the mixing piece of that, and then, you know... I guess the argument argument could be made that on one hand, you know, with artists releasing fewer and fewer songs, it means that you're working uh, and hopefully you're working with more artists. Well, they're not releasing fewer songs. They're kind of releasing, they're, they're, they're releasing them just in smaller, smaller batches, I guess. Increments. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. No, there's, there's, there's more, look, there's more music being made than ever before, but a lot of that music doesn't have a budget attached where I was in a world where at least I was being hired by the labels to work on records and even to make an indie record, it meant going to a recording studio. It meant someone had to drum up a budget. Fair, yes, Which you yes. were getting paid yeah. for the studio and the time. Now, people are doing it for next to nothing, and they can. And unfortunately, I think the work product suffers because you're getting a lot of, not uh, I don't want to say untalented, but un- lack of experience people making the record. And you end up with a thing that they live with and they build. And some great stuff comes out of that, but I do believe, you know, you're hiring someone who's taken two lessons to do something that should take 50, you know? Fair. Uh, more That happens more often. Yeah, I, um, I, can, I can see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely with everything becoming a lot more, with, with the budgets going down, people are farming out to, you know, people who are less experienced, like you said, and maybe they don't have the- Oh, there's uh, an app. The you can do it at home now for nothing. If you own, you exactly. know, you can get in. It's great. It, it's amazing that it exists. I just think there's so much more that the pool of what's, I would call quality is just- smaller because i mean there's a ton of music out there for sure but you can make stuff sound great you know that look we used to when i when sampling first showed up everyone had this one disc that people would pass around with the great samples now you buy you know logic or any of these programs <laughs> it comes with an amazing you know you can 
you have a brain to put this stuff together, it's all sitting there for you. Absolutely. And the sounds are so good. And granted, they can be stock and, you know, get into the same thing. But if you're creative, you, you know, you can make stuff sound amazing with the tools you have today. Of course, of course. So once you shifted over to mixing, like I, I'd love, to, I'd love to dive a little bit more into your process there. You know how how do you typically start a mix? Like, what's your mindset going into a brand new mix? Well, you know, I always like to again uh, part of apropos to the earlier point. Like a lot of them, everyone who's for the most part, people have been working on these productions have been living with them for a while, and they've really been honing the rough mix. So the rough is likely more often than not going to be whether it's sonically you know executed like the levels the actual the point should be very clear so i think spending a minute to listen and see well you can kind of tell quickly was it is is it well realized if it is what are they trying to express what's there what emotion is in there that needs to be kind of honored is it something where you kind of want to recreate what's there and just clean it up or is it something that needs a little love and creativity you know um try and listen to the song and really understand where where would i put this song um and then you just start diving into the tracks you know um you get a lot i get a lot of different kinds of productions some are really well executed and then the work is less fixing and it's just mixing but a lot of the time you get a you know a thing that i'm gonna spend half a day making this stuff sound like they intended it to sound and don't Either they don't have the ears to understand that yet or the experience or, again, due to home recording, I think a lot of people, they're listening in environments that don't sound great and they can't hear some of the, you know, the low end or the, so, yeah, you know, I kind of, I go through everything and assess what it, what am, what am I working with? And then I start to kind of color it as it makes sense, you know, generally mm -hmm. I would say I, I, I get the vocal in early. Often I get like a wet stem and a dry stem. I decide if I want the wet stem, whether that's processing, that's just their treatment, or it's uh, sometimes they've done a cool distortion thing. That's I could, I'd rather just live with the one they did that they're married to other than recreate a different one, depending. Sure. Um, sometimes I'll kind of set up both worlds of their wet and my version, wait a while, keep a being during the mix to see which one I like better. I'll get the vocal sounding, basically clean out any issues, the most time is spent on the vocal. I mean, I think I get a lot of the work I get is because people like the way their vocal sounds. I'm a big fan of using like uh, this RX stuff to like eliminate mouth noises. I'll focus on the yesing. The yesing is like a real science, you know. I think, especially with a lot of home recording, people have one mic or two mics. You know, I was fortunate in my in the bigger budget world. We'd we'd set up ten five thousand dollar mics and try it <laughs> on everybody, and each one fits a different person better. You know, one of them. An SM7 ends up being the best mic sometimes, but not all the time. Uh, and a lot of people don't have great mic technique or understand that if you aim the mic differently, you'll get better S's and all that stuff. So spending time focusing on DSing, very specific DSing, and uh, kind of just get the vocal so it's at a great start point. Like, this sounds great. I can now change this if I want yeah. to fit the record vibe-wise, but this sounds like a really well-done get some compression, you know, so just nice impactful vocal. And then I start, I more or less keep putting the vocal in, but then I just go to drums and start making them sound. I'll listen to the individual ones, see how they marry. If it's a live drum kit, um, I find that if it's a well done, look, drums are another one of those things. <laughs> and 
it's a science to record great drums. You know, there's so many variables in recording drums. There's the guy, as the expression goes, you know, how do you get a great drum sound? Hire a great drummer. It's just <laughs> that guy makes this thing that's, I've, I've been in a situation, I worked at this great studio in New York for a bunch of years called uh, Mission Sound. And my buddy, Ollie, Oliver Strauss, who's the engineer, you know, owns it and is engineer as well. You know, sometimes we'd have projects that I'd be running in the studio and sometimes he'd be running the studio. And there was a period, a block where we had, it was like a bunch of drum sessions, you know, maybe three or four different things. We just kind of left the drums and left the mic. So we, the joke was, I don't know who was the engineer on this one because you set that up, you know, by the end of it. And literally four or five different drummers came in on the same kit with the same mics and they sound completely different. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> completely. And until you kind of get that, the guy is making the sound and then understanding how the room responds and where the mic placement should be and how, you know, so you get a lot of different drum recordings, but if it's a decent drum recording, the overheads are where it all kind of starts for me. That's what sounds like the kit, basically. My tendency is to kind of make it sound like drums in the overheads and then figure out where the kick and snare fit that. You can always add samples if need be. Um, I don't love samples on a snare unless it's really it's crappy. I, I can usually make it sound like I want. I like the liveness and the realness of that. I might add an augmentive sample a little bit, but I'm not a huge fan of sample sam sounding snares. If it's live kit stuff, the kick, I almost always put a sample in because I think you can really just lock in on the low end really nicely with it, you know, just mm -hmm. identify that. And I kind of get a color of the drums. I have a bunch of sub mixes on the drums that I do where I bust different elements to kind of create different, different, yeah, like a very, very tight compressed one. And then like a distorted one that I will kind of blend in and out. And I kind of create like a scene of these drums. And I'll use the same approach to programming, but, you know, again, there's no over it. That, that's more individual elements. Um, and if, if they're well-programmed, they fit together as a team really nicely. Um, I would say, like, some of the main consistent issues I come across or, or things. I don't know. If I'm, I'm kind of jumping around. No, it's all good. It's good, helpful stuff. Um, the, a, lot of people, every, a lot of people, everything's very bright. They put a tambourine in, it's very bright. They put the hi-hats, are very bright. The, everything is bright. So there's a lot of stuff that's competing for that top end. I spent a lot of time trying to, it's hard to pull away brightness in your brain. It's kind of like, you don't want to darken the tambourine. You don't want to make it dull. So I spent a lot of time kind of tuning the top end of drums, guitars, you know, like where that all lies to marry with and complement the vocal, you know, but still maintain excitement. You know, you don't need a bright tambourine, a bright hi-hat, a bright shaker, one of those is enough, you know, yeah. or. And it makes sense if you're starting off with your vocal in there first, then you've got that element that you want to be in the forefront, you know, as the basis for everything else. Yeah. I mean, to me, the vocal is the entire point of this record. No one's going to tell you about the hi-hat sound. They're listening. You know, people are reacting to this song because of the vocal and then, and the drums, right? They're going to love the way that the impact and the vocal and everything's important. But if the vocal doesn't sound good or get your energy or get your attention, there's no point, provided it's vocal music. If there's no yeah. vocal, you're in a different, <laughs> in a different spot. Um, and, you know, the whole thing to me is making space for that vocal to sit. So, like, you know, a lot of people, I'll do something, and, you know, you work, I get it, I, I work on the vocal, and I kind of leave it in the process, and then it becomes the last thing I do again. So it's the first thing and the last thing. So it's always a reminder, so I'm working on it. But then, you know, by the end, I will totally ride it again and make sure it's really sitting. 
like, you know, I'll be near the end of a mix sometimes and I'll like, you know, ref, have a friend reference with me or send it to the producer as like a, you know, I'm at, I'm at 90% how are we sitting. Yeah. And the comment might be like, it's great. The vocal could come up. I'm like, normally my, my approach is I'm pretty good at placing the vocal. Vocal doesn't need to come up. A couple spots maybe need to. Something needs to get out of the way of the vocal is almost always the answer in my brain. I don't love a vocal that sits on top of a mix. I like a vocal that you can hear every word of that's inside the mix. So that's a little bit more if there's an electric guitar that's fighting with, you know, what do we end up with? The two, three, four K is where the clarity of the vocal is. If you got a, you know, a, a strum that's really bitey on, you know, on the downbeats and there's a downbeat vocal word, that's going to fight. So you have to kind of figure out where that carve is and how, you know, we have so many tools these days that are amazing. All these different plugins that you can you know, this multi-band compression and soothe and things that automatically kind of just take away angry spots of a, without really killing it, you know, without really just EQing out of the whole process. That's cool. I like that. No, it, it makes sense the way you're approaching it. I think, you know, starting with that vocal as your foundation that everything kind of works, works with, or so you're, you're supporting the vocal and then kind of at the end, just making sure that, okay, now that I've made all these decisions, like, let's just assess this one more time for the vocal. And it sounds like, it sounds like once you get to that, that last stage of assessing the vocal for the second time, that's kind of like one of your last steps in your process. And maybe you're done. You're mixing it up. Yeah. The very last thing I do is bend to make sure the vocal. And that's when I'll get into like, you know, if I want to bounce a mix and listen on my iPhone or something, that's a very clear way to tell to me how that, where that marriage is very clear to me on every speaker. I love that. I think that's really important because one of the biggest things that I always hear from people is like they don't know when their mix is done, you know, and like they can just tweak endlessly. But I think having that process very clearly identified is so critical because then, yeah, like you you know, you've done that thing and it's like love it or hate it. I got to take a break or I have to just bounce it out and like, you know, assess it. Yeah, I think for my brain, (laughs) I think things are I'm very good at. I'm good at figuring stuff out, but until I figure it out, it's a hot mess. Everything's a puzzle. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, I'm really distracted by sounds. I think I have a little bit of a sensory distraction thing. So when I open something up, like pull the faders and it just, it just feels like white noisy. I don't even know why it makes me uncomfortable. So I think why I'm good at this in general, I think even as a producer too, is like taking away shit that bugs me. That's, you know, like another, <laughs> I think with Phil Ramone or somebody's, you know, Mix secret, turn up the good shit, turn down the bad shit. You know, it's like essentially the basic point. And everything that's kind of like hitting me and like, why is that pulling my attention where it shouldn't be? Let's go figure that out and let's let's attenuate it or mute it. So, some, you know, I'll go through a mix where I'll have things up. I'll just mute a couple of things. I mean, I think really helpful thing to do in a mix is um, mute things, mute sections, mute all the guitars. I will constantly go back around again I have this kind of like a VCA fader setup thing. I use like a fader pack to kind of very quickly, like I can just quickly go back to solo drums, bass, guitar, drums, bass, vocal. And I can just kind of reset. It's like you get there and you start moving faders and everything's like, it was sounding good. And now it isn't. Like what happened? You know, mute those guitars. Like sounds okay. Drums, bass, vocal sound fucking great. How do I keep this exact thing? The simple energy that's just, I, I come from a purist of like, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit built on, uh, less parts, more sound is kind of my instinct. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think, I think the brain can be distracted. I think all most great records, most great hit records, you're only f- meant to focus on one or two things at once. You know, I think the rhythm section is its thing. 
and the base, you know, then there's moments where something can sneak up and steal your attention, but you're supposed to be focused. You're supposed to be feeling something and focusing on something. So if you can get it to feel great with just this foundational thing, you can keep enhancing, add lots of little flavors and colors. You can have a hundred pads if all they're, if they are continuing to add to like one sonic, you know, energy or something, but a ton of moving parts can get distracting to me. Um, if it's, if the arrangement isn't outstanding. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, I constantly will be muting and then I'll even do like, I'll just solo some things. So, so if I know there's like a, 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 this one project I'm working on, it's like a country thing that I'm helping produce and develop with a friend of mine. And it's, it's really great acoustic instrumentation. It's like a lot of picking parts. It's like, so there's picking mandolin and an electric mandolin and a cool, like there's like nine or 10 different electrics and acoustics building like a, bouncing around bed, you know, but it's a lot of where they exactly sit panning wise, EQ wise. One maybe needs to be a little darker to speak on top of the other. So I'll spend, I spend a lot of time just soloing all those and how do they live together? And then you move one and you're like, okay, these two are on the left together. Minor tweaks, you know, realize mm-hmm. one is really speaking in 1k, 2k. Okay. Let's not have 1k and 2k. Let's like that guy speaking three and 5k a little bit more and just, these subtle massages really kind of start to. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I like that. I think that's a great approach for problem solving, like balance issues or, or frequency masking, all that kind of stuff. Cause so many people like, you know, they kind of throw everything in there. They work on their mix for hours and like, they're just, your ears become like just used to the sound that you're hearing. So mm-hmm. to then, to then be able to say like, okay, I'm going to drop out the guitars here for a second. And then we realize like, Oh, wait a minute. That's where all that mud was. You know, then, then you at least have right. that focus. And, of, and then you're like, okay, it's four guitars. Is it all the guitars? No, it's that one dude is really muddy. And then you fix that guy. And all of a sudden everything's fixed or the bass. I love the bass, but it is fighting with that guitar note. Is it better on the guitar note to be carrying that? Or is it better on the bass? So can I pull out some of the frequency that that guitar, you know, and just kind of looking at it that way. Yeah, it helps to recalibrate your ears for sure. So I, I love that. That's a great tip. I'm a big perspective guy. I work fast. I take a lot of breaks. I probably don't sit down in front of a mix at this point. If I make it a half hour, it's probably a long time for me, maybe 40 minutes. And then I walk away, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and I come back. I get a lot done in my half hour and 45 minutes. I've noticed for, it took years to get there to realize if I've turned something up or down two or three times, I need a break. Because on fresh ears, I know exactly where that sits. And if I, and I realize, well, I'm turning it up and down because it's too bright. Mm-hmm. And then I walk in and I was like, oh, if I darken it, it comes up. That's perfect. You know, and noticing that, you know, if you think of, you know, uh, frequencies are pitches. Mm-hmm. So does everyone need to be singing that same high A? No. Like, you know, you kind of think of it as building chords with your EQ a little and, Constantly coming back and reassessing. I, I don't know. I always find value in it. And especially when you're learning to do it, you know, now I'm much quicker at understanding where the problem might be. I can solve it quickly. Yeah. Makes sense. How long do you think it roughly takes you to finish a mix on average? Again, if it, if it came in well, you know, I probably, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty much like, I'm, I spend a day on it and I like to finish in the morning guy. I like to come in fresh. So maybe I'll listen on that ear pods at night or first thing on the way back from the gym or something. I generally spend a day on them. You know, it depends on what it is, if it's well done. But if it's if it's a lot of tracks and it wasn't really that well recorded, I might have to spend a half day cleaning it all up and making it sound right to me, which then burns me out on it too. You know, so then I got to come in as a fresh 
take. So it can take, if it's a complicated mix, it can take a couple of days, but yeah. I shoot for a day of mix. That's cool. You, you had kind of talked about these instruments before, but um, I know you work on a lot of like popier kind of music sometimes. And, and uh, when I think of pop, I tend to think of like, big low end, big bass, but having that clear in your face vocal. And I think this, the way you described your process of focusing on the vocal first and then moving to the drums, I think that to me, like makes it make sense for why you're really good at what you do, because, you know, you're, you're tackling the two big areas of that, of that genre. Um, but I'd love to dive into some of those instruments a little bit more and get a better sense of like, you know, for example, with the bass, you know, what, when it comes to approaching the low end of your mix, maybe not necessarily bass guitar, but bass and drums in general, um, you know, what's your normal approach to, to for that, to, to maintain that bigness but get the clarity? Well, yeah. So, you know, again, I think the third, drums, vocal, and then I do, and then drums and bass. They're kind of one okay. unit. Okay. You know, you got the drums right before the basses. And, and the bass is, you know, if you think of the bass is kind of the, it can be the, uh, it's either foundational, just holding shit down, or it is the only instrument that can be melodic while the vocal's going, essentially. So it can mm-hmm. be very important in what it's doing. You know, depending on the genre, you know, I, I tend to lean towards a bigger bottom stuff. It's just where my ears, I was a bass player for years. It's like my, I tend to like that stuff. I like, you know, more of maybe not as big as like modern hip hop, but, you know, more like R&B, just bass. Um, you got to kind of figure out where those two live down low, you know, the kick and the bass. And they can't be in the same spot. But in dance music, they are a little more in the same spot. The kick replaces the bass. So, you know, there's, a, there's different approaches <laughs> to it. Um, you kind of, again, it's an octave. So say the the kick is feels really nice around, you know, 70 or 80. Like that's where that low note is kind of resonating. And I think the, a very big key to any good production is everything being in tune. The kick drum's got to be in tune with the track. Sometimes I get records that aren't in tune. I will, have to, I will tune that kick that is playing the fundamental mm. or whatever it's supposed to be playing. Sometimes they're just slightly out of tune, like playing a half step off. And it just, when that kick and bass go together, you can just, it just rings in an uncomfortable way. But if it's well assembled, it should be in tune. And, you know, if say it's sitting at 60 or 70 is where that fatness is, then maybe the bass can have a little bit, have really carry that sub. So it can have that 30 f- underneath and then speak the note of it would be an octave above the, you know, 70, so 140. You know, like, so find the notes that speak on that instrument. Um, and then I definitely do some side chaining. You know, I, I make sure the, the bass is almost always side chain in, uh, like, specific frequency side chaining off the kick. I use, like, the FabFilter plugins a lot. Where you can really, you can see where that kick is, which is amazing. You know, you can literally move your, <laughs> you know, your points of, uh, you know, your uh, thresholds, you know, to, to fit right around where that kick is coming in and out. So it's like, you can just duck that frequency to make some room. Um, but that's essentially, and, you know, and then how much top on the bass you need. Like, you know, if you want some type, if that bass is a bass you want to speak up top, you probably can get rid of some of that. It doesn't need all the frequencies. It, it, we want the, the sub, you want that speaking area. You do not need the 200, 300, 400, all of those also if it's a thick sounding bass. So you want to maybe clear out some of those and just really focus in on what is the tone of this bass? What, what, what do you want to speak? And how does that fit with the drums and vocals? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was going to ask you about that because I, I feel like a lot of people do think of bass as just like a low frequency thing. Um, but obviously- well, that's like, sub bass. There's sub bass, yeah. there's bass, and then there's, you know, that's why a lot of guys, on and, and Cynthia, more pop stuff, there's usually a, 
sub bass, you get like multiple tracks. You get a sub bass, you'll get a regular bass, maybe a live bass or whatever. And then you'll get often like in the chorus, a stereo saturated synth thing, right? Now, if they mm. all have a ton of low end, it's probably gonna be a lot of low end. So I will probably filter out some of it on the wide synth one. So, you know, the, they're not, they're not all in the same zone. You're kind of using different elements to cover that frequency range that is we're calling bass, you know? Yeah, you're slotting everything in its own spot. Um, do, you, do you find you ever, like, distort bass to make it work on smaller speakers or anything like that? Or uh, Yeah. I, yeah, I kind of think I lean toward just distorting things. I don't know that I aim for the smaller speaker purpose, but, yeah, there'll be a time. Usually I kind of mix in a way that I just, everything has some aggression and energy to it. I try and have it, but... I will notice sometimes I listen on the, you know, like an iPhone or whatever out of the speaker that oh, I'm not really hearing the bass. Let me, sometimes what's curious, I'm always amazed. It doesn't have any top end yet. You can really feel a thick bass holding it down, even if you don't hear it. And there, there is a way that that translates as well. So depending on what I'm getting off that, I will sometimes go back and add a little bit more edge or, you know, focus distortion. But again, I try and do it specifically. Like what I love about like a decapitator plugin or something is you can, dial it up to a hundred, you can filter that zone. So like, what do I want? I just want that nose to be distorted. I don't want the whole thing. My bottom end is you you can get in trouble. It could, it could be a great sound, but say you like your low end, like it's actually not distorted down in the sub. It's smooth. It's nice. You want the distortion to be in that speaking part. So I'll, you know, go all the way up on my mix. I'll find this zone of distortion I like, and then I'll mix that back in. So it's really just happening up in the one K or the two K, wherever you want that to kind of speak. Um, I'm also a big, I A-B constantly. I am constantly adjusting. I think a lot of plugins, by default, they add gain. They're trying to sell you on the plugin. Of course. So no matter what <laughs> it is, you put that thing in, it always sounds better because it's adding bottom and it's adding gain, always. So I will, I'm a big level, you know, I pull back the output of the plugin when it's engaged. I do it, I get levels matched really clearly. So I'm like, is this doing what I think it is or is it just making it louder? And I spend a lot of time Trying it, turning it off, turning it off. Like, you know, before I settle on it. And I have a bunch of, like, different, not not presets, but worlds I can go to real quick. You know, my assistant will usually give me a setup where there's a few plugins on the base ready to go. And I'll just, I can, you know, it's for the same idea of adding edge or distortion. Certain amps work better than others. And, you know, for doing this long enough, I tend to have, like, a... I, I, I lean in a, for better or worse, I have something in my head. Then I go get it. I'm not like a find it guy, you know, so mm-hmm. you might not like it. I will get something I like. Then it'll just be a taste thing. It'll be sonically, you know, if you don't like the mix, it might not be your taste or style. That said, you can explain the taste of style that you want it to be. I can get that in my head and go get it for you. Like I, I kind of lean with my inner ears first, I guess. Yeah. Makes um, sense. So if I'm hearing something, I'm like, oh, this could use this. I generally know which plugin I want to get it from and I can just go to it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Do you mix with a subwoofer? I do. You do? Yeah. Okay. How essential do you think that is for people forgetting that? Very essential. Okay. Very essential. But the most essential part of any of it is the room. Because if your room is whack, which low end is whack in almost every room. You're in a square room. You've got a lot of stuff around that room. A square is tough, you know, because mm-hmm. bouncing off. I mean, you're, you're, you're handling the high end really nicely. Who knows what the bass is doing? Like, I, I've been... It is the hardest thing to manage in a room. And... I fell into this room and it, it's, uh, we moved to this house and it was like a converted garage. I was like, I was in a rush. So I was going to set stuff up 
And it sounded good to me. And I, I said it to a buddy of mine. I was like, how's the low end? My manager, he's like, sounds great. I'm like, okay, cool. So like, I was lucky, but you know, <laughs> even then I was here for a couple of years before I realized something was a little off. I was talking to a mastering friend of mine, like, it's kind of bad. He's like, I was like, it's a little, I wasn't hearing 80 as well as I thought I was. So I moved the speakers, you know, like it, it takes a long time to really tune the room. And I think you need, but this day and age, you need sub energy. You just, and you can get on headphones too sometimes. I mean, I, I, I'll spend time recently, you know, because everything I listen to that's outside the room, I listen to on my Air, Airbud, you know, AirPods, uh, mm. AirPod Pros, or the little ones, or sometimes the bigger ones. So I've recently started, you know, Pro Tools added this uh, aux IO feature so you can actually route, you know, into Bluetooth outside of, you, I can listen live now with these AirPods in. And I do that sometimes, you know, because it's, there's a certain base energy that they give that I understand because I listen to other records on it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I do think some of these headphones are generating, it's artificial, it's hyped, but it, it's what we're listening to. So you can learn if it's bass enough or not enough bass. I mean, I'm, most of my mixes are being approved by a guy listening to AirPod, right? You know? Fair. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely good to have a couple references to check it out. I mean, it's like Atmos mixing. I started doing some Atmos mixing. I have a couple of friends, and I, he, one friend of mine who has this, he bought all the stuff and he's got nine speakers and he even admitted is like the only person who's ever listened to this Atmos mix in a room like this is you. Every other Atmos person is listening to it on these two sets of headphones. That's the only <laughs> world. So I've been mixing on the headphones and it's translating and everyone, you know, I have, I, I'll check it in the bigger rooms, but it's like, why would you mix it in a place where no one's listening to it? At? You know what I mean? It's so true. I, that, that's like definitely been one of the big debates on this podcast when it comes to Atmos is like, you know, how... You know, how, how, how adapt, like, you know, are people going to adapt this technology and are they going to use it in the way that it was intended to be used? And, and I, I, you know, I think these big rooms of big speakers and yeah, I, I most people aren't listening to that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, what you know, I think whatever speakers you have, if you know them, do a lot of referencing, I think is really important. I, part of my learning process was really a being a lot with records I liked and thought were high end, well, you know, records of the day that were competitive, whatever those were, whatever those are inspiring to you. You got to make sure you're an honest a being setup. You know, there's a couple, I have a, I, I mix with a summing mixer so I can like solo my mix and solo a mix inside. And they're both coming out of the same output and they're not running through my stereo bus stuff, essentially. Gotcha. A lot, if you import your mix in, then it's running through your stereo bus stuff and a lot of this stuff. But there's a lot of plugins, you know, I forget what they're called. Yeah, Met AD Metric AB stuff. is a great one for that. But that's something I use all the time. So, yeah, but I think, and level matching to make sure. I mean, I use that. That was very helpful to me in learning balances. Like, I would AB, like, back and forth, back and forth. I'm going to see, all right, the snares are the same level right now. My mix is theirs. What's different? Oh, mm. their kick's a lot louder. You know, and it really helped me kind of learn how to get balances until they made sense to me. Um, by doing that yeah i mean it was really something of course like real like not fun listening like just critical i would loop you know a couple bars of something i liked between mine and I'd have them right back and forth and be listening sometimes it'd be like bang bang gang 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 sometimes i'd listen for a couple bars just so like what is it different what's the difference what's the difference <laughs> until it made sense <laughs> to me uh and i think i think it's critical to a b and really listen because you'll learn over time What's funny is you'll convince yourself it sounds as good as some of these pro mixes. And then you come back to them a year later and you're like, wow, I suck. It doesn't sound anything like I thought it sounded because your ears learn the next notch of things. And the next, you know, it takes a while to grow into 
your ears. Yeah. But I think that this is a another great tip that you're sharing here in terms of the problem solving side of things when it comes to your mixes. It's like by by listening to these references, it's allowing you to identify those differences between, you know, why does this kick sound different than that one? Yeah, and, it's really you know, hard to not, you know, there's apples and oranges a lot of the time. So if you can get it as apples to apples as you can, which is gain matching, it's really important with those plugins, with everything. I'm constantly gain matching. And I do a lot of work on the stereo bus. I'm a big, part of it is, you know, this. I came up on consoles and outboard gear and tape and stuff like that. I was kind of the end of that in the beginning of the Pro Tools world. Um, you know, inherently, digital doesn't sound like anything. It sounds clean, you know? So there's a million ways to add saturation or whatever. There's a million EQs. There's a million things that emulate the old stuff. Brand new things, clipping, you know, a million ways to color something or to glue it. So I will have a bunch of different, I have a ton of stuff on my stereo bus that I'm constantly turning on and off, A, being, adjusting, you know. I try and get the mix sounding pretty good before that begins. But sometimes I'll like, sometimes it goes on early and I just kind of mix into it. And it just, and if I realize at some point things are feeling a little off, maybe I start fresh and realize, oh, maybe I've been depending on this stereo bus too much. If I take this EQ off, the whole thing feels really muddy. It shouldn't feel really muddy. It should feel a little less muddy when I put the EQ on the stereo bus on, you know, mm-hmm. or a little bit something. But I do a lot of that because, you know, how things glue together, there's just a way it starts to feel musical or a little bit of push and pull and, you know, to my ears, so the way I like to hear them sound. Of course. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we talked a little bit bass there. I'd love to now get into your vocals a little bit more, if you don't mind. Um, obviously, that you know, like like you said, that's kind of a big part of your process, right, from the beginning and the end. Um, so, as far as getting that classic poppy vocal sound, you know, what what's your trick for for doing that? Like, what kind of tools are you using to get that sound? Um, I use. I have kind of a weird little complicated vocal setup where I kind of uh, I kind of create two vocal sub mixes like a parallel kind of thing yeah it's basically parallel uh that are ones like really hyper compressed maybe like a tight 1176 or something really fast attack fast release spitty aggressive and i will treat that one i'll eq it to get rid of the i'll ds it in one particular way so that it has the aggression without being maybe too muddy or too whatever i'll find the color of that that i think is like a almost a hyper aggressive rock sound and then i'll usually do a smoother one like a, a, F, a Fairchild or something that's just, you know, like just nicer sounding, but compressing and holding nicely. And I'll bl- blend those two into a new chain. So that's kind of like now I've started my vocal. <laughs> and that goes into a chain that I do a lot of stuff to. I might compress that a little bit together again so that as the spitty guy comes up, he's being held down. And the other guy, you know, it keeps it, it lets like each color speak as they need to. It lets them jump around, gives a little bit of life. Um, I will use generally some form of saturation. I like the Thermionic Culture Vulture guy from UAD, which I used to use the analog version years ago. Um, I, again, I like to capitator for stuff. Give like some harmonic saturation that just makes it in your facey. Um, there'll be a little more compression. I generally do multiband compression on the vocal at that point to, especially like a lot of female vocals, there's, you know, it, like little like mic proximity. So when they're singing low, it can, can be really kind of murky. But when they go high, there's not a lot to support it. So you want that those frequencies back. So I'll find like the 
the O of a, of a vocal, <laughs> try and get, get that under control. And what else do I do? Definitely a, a lot of DSing, a lot of specific DSs. I find, you know, you realize that S's are, they're all notes. And if they're, some of them whistle more than others. And if sometimes they whistle out of tune because they are, they are a note. And people have, there's several different, there's lots of different S's. There's sh, there's S, there's sting, there's sad. They, and they all have a different spot. So depending on how, where that person sits, I will focus on kind of trying to get those under control without being lispy. Are you using a tool like RX for that kind of stuff? No, I do it. I, I don't like to commit it as much. Sometimes I do. I, I, I get very specific. So I'll do, sometimes I get it in audio suite specific spots if, if the person really has an issue. Um, I do, I use Feb Filter DSer a couple instances and I, I still like that Waves, the old school that's just called DSer. Yeah, it's my, that's my favorite for sure. It just ends. I just put a kind of like it's a nice just cap on the end. And then I like Soothe a lot. Soothe is just an incredible plugin that I find that helps tame. So there'll be a lot of different ones in there. Because again, a lot of vocals come in very bright and very harsh. And then you add distortion, they get harsher. I like a, sh- so if you control the S's, then you can like really boost air up top. You know, you can crank 12K or 16K. So the vocal has a sheen on top, but you're not also throwing those S's up there. So you mm-hmm. want to get those like under control so that the non-consonants can be nice and shiny, depending. That's in a pop sense. And then, you know, just different effects. A lot of the times, a lot of the records, pop records come in, they've they've worked on these rough mixes and they're, they're printing effects. So whether you use them or not, I tend to start with them because they've been living with it. They made a choice. Sometimes you realize when you work with the producers multiple times, they're just, they use the same ones every time. So it's not much of a choice. It's like, a, it's just easy. It's a lazy, or, you know, like, oh, that sounds good. And that's okay too. Uh, but I'll look at those effects and see where they're, because now that I've cleaned this vocal up, right, they printed those effects off of a vocal that maybe had too much brightness or nose to it or whatever. So I'll EQ maybe those returns and see how those fit. Otherwise, you know, I have a bunch of, I, I almost always use some kind of vocal spreader. Like um, I used to use the old Eventide harmonics uh, H3000 back in the day. And I and the, uh, what's it called? Sound Toys pitch, whatever their thing is called. Uh, yeah, a little, little micro shift or not, whatever it's called. There's, there's, yeah, micro shift and a little micro shift. They do. I have a setting that I kind of modeled after that, a setting I used to use back that, I don't know, like it got passed down from like Andy Wallace or something. I don't know, someone, <laughs> you know, back when I was learning, it was the setting, it sounded great. It's kind of the thing that you don't hear it. You turn it up until you hear it and you turn it down a little bit. And then if you mute it, it just doesn't sound as good, but you don't really know it's in there and just spreads the vocal. Yeah. Um, I'll use, I find I use a lot of subtle slap. It just keeps exciting, even if it's not that loud. I mean, you can use slap as a real effect too, but even if you're not really knowing that it's there, it just it lets a little, little, little linger after the consonants, you know, a little bit of, gives a little sparkle. And I'll just do different, I tend not to use a lot of reverbs. There's a lot of reverb in, in music today. And I'll, I'll I like the, like indie pop is a ton of reverb. So I do, I used to use a lot of reverb. So I, I, gotta, I kind of forget and go back around to it sometimes because, um, but I use a lot of delays and some of these delays do sound like reverbs. I like the delays because you can, because they're in time. You can, you know, you can do pre-delay on them. You can really color the returns. You can, uh, the delay is just more manageable to me to do the similar effect. You can make them sound very swimmy, but you can just control a little bit more than the wash of reverb, which again, sometimes it's perfect. 
you still have that perception of the depth there. Yeah, I tend to lean towards a lot of clarity and things really having its space. The stuff I like the most is the stuff I, I guess the stuff I was initially inspired by the most. I mean, it's ironic. Some of my favorite records before I thought about doing this for a job sound like crap, but they're great. You know, old Stones records or whatever, you know, but the ones that I kind of wanted to sound like are very, they're great productions where everything sits exactly where it should and you can hear everything. It's just very well assembled. You know, like a song like uh, Hella Good by No Doubt. I still reference that. It still sounds, it could have been released today, that record. Such a it is clear so well executed. Track. The production's incredible. The mix is incredible. Everything's incredible about it. And everything sits. I mean, if you listen to like the bass management on that, there's like three bass sources all speaking on their own. There's a million little colors. Nothing steps on anything else. Again, it's a great arrangement. It's a great production. But the execution in the mix is, is phenomenal. So I tend to lean towards that and delays enable you to be a little bit more controlled. Like I'll do specific reverbs on individual elements, like cool guitars. I'll put some springs on and I tend to make them, I tend to put my effects like that monoed with the elements, you know, so they're not smearing the whole mix. They're like, again, records I grew up on, like, you know, Roxy Music Avalon and, you know, Bob Clearmountain records and the eighties records that were really, they're very clean. You know, they, some of those can sound dated, but the, you can still bring that aesthetic into today and they, it still applies in a lot of places is that, you know, everything I like individuality that sums together as opposed to like a wash generally. Yeah. Some people like to take the approach of mixing as if everyone's in the same room and you all share the same reverb and that kind of thing. Yeah. But- and some projects are like that. Some records I've worked on a few records. Like the, 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 I did the black Pumas bunch of mixes for them that totally is like that. And that's the way it, and look, a lot of that was printed, uh, you know, uh, Adrian did a killer job. The producer, he's, a, he's the guitar player in the band as well, and songwriter, co-songwriter. Um, he, you know, he like was very old school approach, and he printed a lot of those. All he's got a bunch of old gear in his place. Printed some slap, old slap, and spring reverbs, and you know, it was awesome. So I just, all I was doing was reassembling that and cleaning it up a little bit, you know. But that, that can be, that can be great. I love that too. You know, I, I'll do, I do a bunch of live stuff. I like the live stuff. It's supposed to sound like you're all in the same room, but. I do like definition. I like knowing who's you can accomplish both if you, you know, if you work on it. For sure. Absolutely. Well, it's it's funny you brought up the Black Pumas cuz uh that's definitely a band of yours that I I love the sound of those records, man. Like they they sound incredible and Yeah, I mean, I I I can take very little credit. I mean, it it's it's mixing a thing that was very much what it was and I I think I did a great job, you know, m- m- shining up the stuff I did. I, mean, I basically did the radio singles for that. But uh you know, they, they executed their vision. Again, how do you get a great drum sound, hire a great drummer? How do you get a great mix? <laughs> get a great production. I mean, almost every pro- every mix you love was likely a great production. You can hear sometimes that it wasn't a great production. The guy did a great job. Like, and sometimes I'm prouder of the ones I know that like, I was like, that sounds great. And I know how much work I had to do to get there. And it makes me proud that I did it. I would have rather it came in sounding great. I have to work as hard, but you know, some of them, you just, you put up faders and it already sounds good. And no one's going to be that crazy about it. Like the rough mixes, if you release that, it's fine. Master it. <laughs> yes, I made it better. Yes, I shined it. Yes, I, you know, made the vocal speak. Yes, the bottom end kicks a little bit more or whatever. But, you know, getting it right on the front side is really, as a producer, is, is killer, you know. For but sure. then as a mixer, you never know what you're getting. You got to kind of learn. And I think that speaks to knowing what a great production is helps as a mixer in that you can kind of understand what's wrong and try and 
sort of produce in the mix by cleaning, by making better choices, by muting things. But, you know, for sure. Well, one of the, one of the things about the Black Pumas records that I really like is just like the, the tone overall. There's like this saturation that, that applies to the whole mix that I, I just mm-hmm. love how how well that has been executed. I don't know if that's something that you would have added in the mixing stage or if that's something they would have baked in. Uh, yeah, I mean, I added, but again, I think you find it on, there's album versions and there's my single mixes and they're all, they sound a little different, but essentially that style was, he was using tape. He was, it was very analog. It was done very analog and he was very meticulous about the choices going in. Yeah, you talked, well, you had mentioned that you, Sometimes we'll use saturation with like um, your bass or your vocals. Um, I use it a lot. I use it on every. I mean, I'm happy to use saturation on. But again, if if, a, if sound comes in, it's. I, I've been fortunate enough to work under great guys with great engineers, great drummers, great guitar players. And the when you when it's really there's a lot of good guitars, not a lot of great guitar. <laughs> and when it comes in and it's just it's distorted, it sounds right. The guy plays it. It's like I don't need to add anything. You know, or a bass, like, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a bass player. I'm a good bass player. I used to be a very good bass player. I don't play all the time anymore. I was never a great session guy. I didn't have my tone game on. I was doing lots of stuff. When I hire a guy like Jack Daly, who has, he just understands his instruments so well, he starts playing. It just sounds big. It just sounds so much better. You know, I played on this record that uh, I've been working on because it was like, you know, kind of necessary. And, I, and the parts I played are great. And, you know, I, I love what I did. Sounds okay. I had to work hard in the mix to make it sit because my <laughs> I got one bass that I like, great bass, but it's maybe not the right call for everything. I'm using not real amps, and so the variability is over there. And my buddy, you know, John Lardieri played on another record, and he's just better bass. He's just more evolved bass player than me, and came in sounding so much better than mine. I had to work so much less on making his fit, you know, <laughs> just because his he's been honing that skill for longer, you know, and continuing at it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, so the more you can get, so I'll add saturation to a guitar if it needs it because it didn't have enough going in, you know, or yeah. it needed to be, I get a lot of home recordings that guys are pretty good. The the musical ideas are good, but they're not 10 years of experience recording. You know, I, when I, the guys they came up under and even myself, we had 10 different amps. We'd try, we'd move mics, we, you know, we, it was just a different experience level to train your ear to know, oh, this should sound like this. Because that's what we, I know how to get that, you know, <laughs> or it doesn't sound as good as that. Why is that? Oh, I don't know. Move mics, move mics. So then when I get the home done with some fake amp, it sounds okay. I got to put some work in to make it sound like it. If we were in a studio and have, hey, let's take five minutes and tweak this sound going in. Like, mm-hmm. it sounds cool. What if we messed around with the sound a little bit more before we recorded instead of, okay, the part's done. That's the sound I have. So it's a little bit more forethought. And again, it's only because of experience. A lot of times people don't realize that it could have been better. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that's a really good point. I, th- I think you're right. A lot of people just kind of get tracks to mix and it's like, okay, this is what I got. Like, let's just work with this. And you're just like trying to polish a turd sometimes. And, you know, by, by actually taking a little bit of time to get a better sound right at the source. And I think that makes such a big difference. Well, that's everything. I mean, it really is. Yeah. But I would have less, I wouldn't have as much of a job. well speaking of saturation um i'm curious to know like when it comes to applying saturation to your mixes how do you gauge like when something when you have enough saturation or maybe when you have too much like how how do you how do you fit that saturation in perfectly yeah i mean i guess it all just you just got to trust your instincts on all of it you know uh is it stepping on something is it ruining the vision of what it was supposed to be is it helping? Sometimes it can transform the whole thing and all of a sudden your mix is flipped and it's like, wow, I found, I stepped on something that is 
amazing, you know? Um, yeah, I don't, it's a hard question to answer. I yeah, think fair. you just really got to trust your instincts on that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, one last question to kind of sum everything up here. At the end of the day, with all of the stuff that we've been talking about here, at the end of the day, what ultimately makes a great mix for you? Um, you know, it's funny. I just think it's whether you listen and you listen to that and you, you, you enjoy the story listening, you know, you can get into the technical aspects. And I think we are always working on that. You want it to have, you know, great big bottom, great, you know, clarity in the, the vocal and shine up top and everything be dramatic. But if you're not enjoying listening to it and if you're not being taken by this vocal, it's just not a great mix. So it's making sure that the emotion and the message of the song, because it's nothing without a song, right? Mm-hmm. Mix is the, it can be a very important part of it, but you don't have a song and a great singer. It's, who cares, you know? And remembering that, I think. Um, but yeah, I think something that has that, those emotional characteristics and then can carry on every, you know, every system you listen on is essentially the answer, I would say. Yeah, makes sense. Well, right on, John. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. If, if people want to learn more about you or potentially even hire you, that kind of thing, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, go to my website, which is uh, afkmix.com, I believe. I think, I think I changed it recently. I think that's what it is. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. I'll put it in the show notes too. So <laughs> it's <laughs> afkmix.com. You can get in touch with my manager through there or whatever, but you know. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. Fair thing, man. So that was my interview with John Kaplan, and I really enjoyed that. I thought it was really great getting some insight into his process. Uh, I loved what he was talking about when it came to things like the low end, and I thought it was very cool to hear him talking about how he likes to tune kick drums to match the key of the song. That's something you don't hear a lot of people talk about doing, so I thought it was really cool to get some insight into that. And if you've ever heard any of John's mixes, you'll know that the low end feels really big, really clear, and it makes sense when you hear his process for how he approaches things and how meticulous he is about making sure that everything has its own space within the mix i think it makes a lot of sense and it's really the reason why his mixes sound so great so yeah i definitely really enjoyed learning a lot about that and i also thought it was really great to hear more about his process for problem solving throughout the mixing process i loved what he shared about how he'll mute mix groups to help identify which instruments are causing problems in a mix. I think that that is such a great exercise to go through. And if you're ever feeling like your mix is just sounding muddy or whatever, but you're not quite sure exactly what's causing that problem, I would highly recommend that you try this exercise out. And yeah, just start muting things. And very quickly, you're going to find when you land on the right instrument group that is causing the problems in your mix, your mix is going to sound so much clearer and it's going to give you so much more focus in terms of where to put your energy to Focus on getting even more clarity in your tracks and which ones, which tracks you need to EQ, which ones you need to add processing to or take away processing, that kind of stuff. So, you know, this is really kind of just a way of honing in on the problems in your mix so that you can get stuff done faster and not just guess, right? It's all about giving you the clarity that you need. So yeah, I really enjoyed everything that John shared here today, and I definitely recommend that you try out a lot of these ideas because they're definitely going to help you. But that said, if you are still feeling lost or confused when it comes to your mixes, and you're not quite getting the quality that you're expecting, and you're not sure of what to do with them, if you would like additional help, then I want to help you out. 
Inside of my Amplitude coaching program, I work one-on-one with all of my students to make sure that your mixes sound the absolute best they can. This is a program where you can literally send me your mixes and get quick feedback on what you need to do. I'll make you personalized videos walking you through what you need to do with EQ, compression, volume, panning, etc. Whatever your song needs to get it to the level that you expect, I will work with you personally to help make sure that you achieve that. And in addition to the unlimited support that you get through mixed feedback and reviews, you'll also get access to my premium training library, where inside I'll walk you through the process of recording, editing, and mixing your music step by step so that you know exactly what steps to take along the way so that you can get quick answers and quick results. Now, if you're interested in learning more about this program, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude. And on that page, I have all the details. And yeah, I would love to work with you inside of this program, help you finish a project if you're currently working on new music, or if you've got a, a single or an album that you're working on, I'd love to help you out with this program. And I know that it's going to get you great results. Everyone inside of this program so far has seen a massive improvement, and I can't wait for you to be next. So once again, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude for more details. So with that said, we have reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.